did you have uh, in your youth, did you have any rules imposed on you at home or at school that you thought were ridiculous? I, I know some of you probably thought all of the rules imposed on you were ridiculous, but did you, do you have any that stick out to you? I know from being up at the school, our teenagers, at least of a certain age, are not supposed to have their phones out at all during the day. And I know they think that is ridiculous because I should be able to stare at the stuff that makes me hate myself all day long without any interruption. It's ridiculous that I have to take a break from it. Um, I know when, when I was in school, the cell phone thing was not an issue. We'd had to carry like the pay phone that was hooked to the wall. Uh, it's hard to get uh, pictures through those. Um, but I do remember in the lunchroom in our elementary school cafeteria, they had this great big stop sign. On one side, it was a red stop sign. On the other side, it was a green go sign. And it said go when we came in and got our trays and went and sat down. And then when the lunchroom monitor turned that baby around to red, the stop sign meant no talking. We had to be completely silent while we ate. And the teachers would walk around. And if they saw you talking, you'd have to stand up and take your tray and go stand against the wall and stand there and eat your uh, your, your meal standing up, which was at the same time humiliating and hilarious. But it just seems so weird to me. It still kind of does, to tell you the truth. In fact, when I close my eyes, I can still hear one of my classmates chewing with his mouth open in the silence of that lunchroom. Will you please turn the sign around so I can stop hearing Scott pre-digesting his Salisbury steak. It's awful. Uh, but enough about my childhood pain. Um, well, how about you? I'm sure you had some of these. This will be good lunchtime conversation. What were the rules that you thought were awful? We're going to finish the books of Samuel today. And 2 Samuel chapter 24 centers around um, a rule that is just one of those because God said so sort of rules. There's this wrong thing that David does, and we can't even really tell why it's wrong. We, we opened this chapter last week with just one verse, which we won't study today. Here's what started this chapter, this last story, the anger, God was angry at everyone in Israel. And because he was angry at everyone in Israel, God incited David to do something wrong. He told God to go do a census of Israel. He didn't, or excuse me, God incited David to go and take the census. And as we'll see today, the census was sinful. Now that verse brings up a lot of questions and most of them we won't deal with today. If, if you'd like to hear the answer to the questions going on in your brain, check out last week's sermon. But for today, we're going we're gonna to look at the census and the responses to that. 
And then we're really going to try to answer this question. Why would this be the last story in this book? Because remember, the last four chapters of 2 Samuel are not chronological. Our author, I believe God ordained that this weird, hard-to-understand story is what he left as the lasting effect of this, this book that covers the story of David. Where we're going to start this morning, so 2 Samuel chapter 24, we're going to start right here with, in verse 2, with David giving this order that, again, God incited him to give. Verse 2, the king, that's David, said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan up north to Beersheba in the south and register the people so that I may know how many people we've got around here. Verse 3, but Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are while the eyes of my Lord the king still see, but why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? There's the order. We're going to leave the question as to why, why was this census wrong? We'll leave that for a minute. Just from here, I want you to know, I want you to notice, Joab knew it was wrong, didn't he? As soon as David says, I want to do a census, Joab tries to talk him out of it. Joab says, O king, I hope Israel grows, the population of Israel grows exponentially while you're king, but we shouldn't be out counting them. Don't do this thing. Well, David does that thing. Verse 4, nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and camped in Aroer, on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad, toward Jezer. Then they came to Gilead and to the land of uh, Tatim Hadshi, and they came to Dan Ja'an and, the, and, then, and around Sidon, and they came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the south, south of Judah to Beersheba. So when they had gone about through the whole land and they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab gave the, gave the number of the census of the people to the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. We're not going to dwell on that long. That's just the report that the work was done, the census was taken. Let's move on to the responses, uh, the responses that happen immediately after the census is taken. The first response is David has regret. Verse 10. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant because I have acted very foolishly. So immediately, uh, as the story goes, after Joab and the army come back, they give David all of the information that David wanted, and then David has regrets, and David does something that might sound familiar. David did something that he knew was wrong the whole time, 
He even had a friend tell him it was wrong. He could have stopped it. He could have thrown the brakes on this at any moment, but he waits until he actually has the information that he wants, and then he decides, I have regrets, God. Please don't punish me. Please don't make me feel any negative consequences now that I have done the thing I knew I shouldn't have done. Now that it's over and I've gotten what I want, no negative consequences, please. Anybody? Or maybe that one's just me. All right. David knew this was wrong the whole time. That's his response. Regret and asking God, uh, please, no negative consequences. But God's response comes beginning in verse 11. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer or prophet, saying, so here's what God told Gad, go speak to David. Here's what the Lord says. I'm offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, here's your choices, David. Shall one, seven years of famine come to you in your land, or two, will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you, or three, shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So David, here's a word from God. There are going to be negative consequences. You knew what you were doing was wrong. You picked door number one, door number two, or door number three. Now, those are really serious consequences, aren't they? This is not going to be a slap on the wrist. People are going to die. So now I think it's time to answer this question. I think it's time to take a bit of a time out from the passage and answer this question, why was this census so wrong anyway? We take a census every 10 years. We can go elsewhere in the Bible and see God ordering Israel to take a census. Bible scholars give us a couple of, a couple of really good answers, possible answers as to why this was so wrong. Um, I want to share with you the one that I think is the most likely reason why this was so wrong, but then I want to share with you the actual answer to this question of why this was so wrong, okay? The most likely answer to why this was sin uh, goes like this. In the ancient world, people only took a census for two reasons, taxation and and military planning. That's it. And it could be there was a temple tax the first time God told Israel to, uh, to, to number the people and David didn't order that. That's one idea. I think the, more, the, the, the easier one to think about anyway is this was for military purposes. That's why David sends the army to do this. And the count comes back as we just read, the number of valiant men who can draw the sword. David doesn't want to know how many people are there. He wants to know how many troops he can call up. And so the idea of why this was wrong goes like this. David's not supposed to trust in how many men he has available. David wants to see, based on the the number of fighting men I have, what nations can I whip and what nations can whip me. 
That's not the way Israel was supposed to work. David, in his own life, and in the, in the history of Israel, David has plenty of evidence to support. This is the way Israel was supposed to work. When God says, go fight, you go fight whom and where and when God says, no matter how many people are out there. In fact, if God tells you, Israel, to go fight, and when you fight, you're supposed to march around a city and play musical instruments, if that's what God tells you to do, that's how you will win. And so the idea goes, here's how we think of this. David was wrong. He was sinful because he was putting his trust in Israel's strength and not in the strength of the God of Israel. I think that's most likely the correct answer. But now I want to tell you the corrector answer. <laughs> because there is, there is a, there's an answer that's more correct than that, even if that's the correct answer. Because the real answer to this question, why was this census so wrong anyway? Here's the answer. The census was wrong because God thought it was wrong. See, we, we want to, when we ask that question, why is this so wrong? Here's what we're really asking. I want to know how to think about this so it feels yucky to me. So it feels evil to me, so I can hate it too. And that's a dangerous line of thinking. And it turns out God's been teaching this concept already for a long time by the time we get to 2 Samuel. In fact, the law of Israel is full of things that make us ask this question, why is that wrong anyway? I pulled just a few out this morning, okay? We don't live under the law, but for Israel, God had said it was sin for Israel. Israel can eat no bugs except grasshoppers. In fact, only certain kinds, they're called locusts, but come on, we know what those little critters look like. Certain kinds of grasshoppers and crickets, if they meet the right criteria, it's not sinful to eat those, but all the other grasshoppers and crickets and bugs and grubs and whatever, that's sin. Okay? It was sin for Israel to eat shellfish. No lobster, no shrimp, no crabs. It was sin for Israel to eat fish without scales. No shark steaks, no catfish. But some other fish swimming right past those things that had a different kind of skin, it's not sin at all for you to eat that. It was sin for Israel under the law to have mixed fabrics. No 50-50 blends in Israel. It's sin. It was sin for Israel to plant different crops in the same field at the same time. So farmers, if you have you know, some cover crop with like radishes and peas, I don't know what you throw out there. I'm making stuff up at this point. But I know you do it. If you lived under the law, that would be sin. Now, I would challenge you to come up with a moral justification for these things. People do it all the time. Because I want to know how to think about this in a way where I think it's disgusting, right? It's yucky for why eating bacon is sin, right? But eating trout is not. 
And we miss the point when we do that. Because the point is not, how do I figure out how to feel yucky about what God says? No. The whole lesson is, because I said so, God said. I'll make your head spin even more. Because we no longer live, or we have never have, we're filthy Gentiles. Because we don't live under the law, that stuff's immediately okay for us, not immoral at all. And for a Jew living under the law, it was wrong. That doesn't even make any sense. How can that be true? You know why? Because God said so. And here's why that's important. Here's why I, I'm sort of pushing, pushing down on this point. Because when we get in the habit of feeling like I have to feel like something is wrong or yucky before I think it's wrong, who becomes God at that point? Because the truth is, you will not agree with God all the time. You are not batting a thousand with God. You're not. So I got some more examples for you. I've said this a lot in my time here. If you read this book enough, you will find things that offend you. You heard me say that? Well, this morning, let's try it. I collected some things on purpose that I think will offend every person here. Isn't that what you came here for this morning? Hallelujah! Okay? And I predominantly, this is from the New Testament, not that we don't have to listen to the Old Testament. I just want to make really clear. Okay. God says these things are right and wrong. We'll start with alcohol, drunkenness. If you like to drink alcohol and you like or you tend or at times you drink to the point where you know you are drunk, you are inebriated, that is very clear that is sin. Now, if you like to think that alcohol by itself is sin and you've pounded the table for that position, that's wrong too. You can read in Ecclesiastes, it says these words, drink your wine. God had Israel pour out strong drink on the altar as a sacrifice to him. Um, I know you've heard it, wine in the ancient time, it had alcohol in it. Okay, it just did. That's why we're warned not to get drunk on it. How am I doing? Everybody offended yet? Just wait. It gets worse. Let's go from alcohol. Let's go from booze to sex. How about that? So, okay, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible says. If you want to be righteous in this area of your life, this is all you have to do. All of your sexual energy, physically, mentally, imagined, chewed on, can only be about one person of the opposite gender after you are already married to that person. Anything else outside of that, and you're in sin. Now let's talk about money. New Testament's pretty clear. We are to give sacrificially of God's money that he lets us hang on to for a time. 
sacrificially, generously is a key word. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens, the Bible says sometimes. Well, if it doesn't, if it doesn't feel like I'm really doing some lifting, am I, am I really bearing another's burden? Or think of it this way. If the only money I ever give away, the government was going to take anyway, and I just get to redirect that towards something I like better than the government, which is, I don't know, everything. <laughs> is that sacrificial or am I just giving away the government's money? Now, if I've made you feel like I'm coercing you into giving, I got to talk about that because that's sin too. It's got to be, you have to purpose in your heart what God would have you give. Uh, four, if you tend to compare yourself to others and uh, you're jealous about what someone has, who someone, uh, what their relationships are like, who they are married to, um, if you tend to wish you had talents, abilities, things that other people had, you're in sin. If you like or tend to talk about other people's business, stuff they really don't want shared, stuff you don't really know if it's true, you're in sin. If you tend to keep a list of the ways someone has hurt you or misbehaved and you use that list as fuel for the way you avoid them, mistreat them, you are in sin. If you are a husband who is married, if you don't treat your wife like she is of extremely high value, if you don't cherish her in spite of whether or not you think she deserves it, she deserves it. You know why? Because God said so. Not because her behavior has earned it. If you don't cherish your wife, lay your life down for your wife, you are in sin. Wives, if your husband is disobedient to the word, if your husband is a sinner, is an unbeliever, is, is uh, imperfect, if you use the things he does wrong as their justification for treating him poorly, disrespectfully. You are in sin. Peter says you're still supposed to be trying to win your husband using a quiet spirit. Your pure behavior. Anything else is sin. All right, how are we doing? I leave anybody out? Just in case I did, if you think you nailed all those things, well, let's talk about pride and self-righteousness later. Here's why I put you through that rather uncomfortable uh, exercise. The most natural thing 
for God-fearing people to do. I won't say Christians, uh, though it's true for Christians, but anyone who believes there's a God out there and they want to be okay with God someday. The most natural thing to do is to figure out how to feel okay with the way I already am. Right? The most natural thing to do is keep looking for some resource, some person, some thing who will tell me in your situation, you are, you're really nailing it. You're doing okay. The truth is, there's a God out there who says what's okay and what's not. And do we really think he always feels like I do? I mean, think how ridiculous that sounds. Now, the other reason this is so dangerous, one is because this stuff will hurt you. It'll hurt you. And it'll hurt those around you. But also, when I just live in a way where the things I avoid are the things I feel yucky about, and I figure out how to be okay with the stuff I don't feel yucky about, is then before long we will think I am nailing it. We'll think I am right on track. We will always hold up a bar we know we can clear and feel like I'm clearing the bar that matters. We better get back to our regularly scheduled program here. But this is the story with this census. The question in our mind should not be, man, I got to figure out how to think bad about this. God's going to kill 70,000 people in the rest of this story. I better figure out how to feel really yucky about this or else I'm going to feel like God's doing something wrong. When here's the truth, this census is wrong because God said it's wrong. And it's the same thing with all the rest of the stuff that offends us in the scriptures. All right, we'll go back into our story. Where we left David, he had this awful choice to make, right? Door number one, two, or three. Door number one was you can have seven years of terrible harvests and people probably dying of starvation and whatnot. Number two, you can get your tails kicked militarily um, from uh, external enemies. Or number three, God says three days of a plague, like Exodus-level plague, killing folks through Israel. The, the only choice David makes is not number two. Just, I don't want to fall into the hands of those enemies. Verse 14, David said to Gad, I am in great distress making this decision. I, I, I am sure that is true. I have a hard time deciding what to order at a restaurant sometimes. Not this choice is... It's very difficult. But he says, let us now fall into the hand of the Lord. Why? Because his mercies are great. Don't let me fall into the hand of those nasty Moabites next door. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are great. You hear David there? 
David says, let the one who punishes me be the one who will save me. David knows these two things are right about God. God is a God of justice and wrath. God is a God of mercy. At the same time, it's not like, I think God's a God of love. Well, I think God's a God of wrath. If you only think one of those things, you're wrong. Now the plague, verses 15 and 16. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men from, of the people from Dan to Beersheba, that's north to south throughout Israel, died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, it's enough, relax your hand, quit killing folks. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. So the picture we get in these verses is God sends something out to start killing dudes. And in this wave, it seems like it starts way far away from Jerusalem and it works its way toward the foot of the hill and it's killing people all the way up the hill. And then God says, enough. But it brought death and destruction to one specific place. And David doesn't know that God has put a stop to the killing yet, but he has. And that, David, I think David can see people dropping on the way up the hill. And it gets close in verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel. I don't know what he saw, what it looked like, but it was scary. He was striking down the people. And here's what David said, Behold, it's I who have sinned. It's I who've done wrong. But these sheep, all those people out in Israel, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house, which in his way of thinking would also be against me. Hear what David says there. David sees all these people dying. David doesn't know the whole story. This is where we get like, David thinks, why are you killing all those innocent people out there when I am the one who has sinned? Do you think David had a hard time with that? Yeah, but David doesn't know the whole story. You know how I know? Glance up at verse 1. This whole thing started because the anger of the Lord burned against all of Israel. God was mad at everybody. You know why? They're all a bunch of sinners. And God put this whole plan into motion, driving toward this point, and David does something really wise. You know what he does? He decides, I need to confess my sins. <laughs> he throws himself down. He says, God, I looked around, and I know what's wrong here. It's me. You know, confessing your sins is infinitely more powerful than continuing to rehearse someone else's. And then the king of Israel says this. Stop killing everyone else. Please let your hand be against me. Hang on to that one for a second. 
The king of Israel says, please stop killing everyone else in your wrath. Let it all fall on me. Immediately following David's confession, things change. The atonement happens. Let's read the, last, the rest of the chapter. So Gad, that's the prophet, came to David that day and said to David, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just like the Lord had commanded. Arona looked around and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And he went out and he bowed down with his face to the ground before the king. Then Arona said, what are you doing here, David? Why have you come to see me? And David said, I've come to buy the threshing floor from you in order to, for I, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Verse 22. Arana said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, I got oxen for you. For, uh, I've got wood. I've got threshing sledges. Take the ingredients that you need and offer up the sacrifice. Verse 23. Everything, O king, I give to you. Uh, may the Lord your God accept you. Verse 24. However, the king said to him, no, but I will surely buy the whole place from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land and the plague was held back from Israel. That's how the chapter ends. It's how the book ends. And you know what we learn right there about this whole chapter? If you were a, if you were a, a, a Jewish person from a thousand years ago reading this for the first time, you would know, oh, that's the site of the temple. Okay, this the threshing floor of this guy. Like, well, that whole thing is just the story of how Israel came to own the temple, the, the, the ground where the temple was built. Yep, that's the story. And the book closes. And it's weird, uh, it's, or it's interesting, the guy who owned it didn't even want to sell it to David. Read that through again. David says, I've come to buy this place. And the guy goes, oh, why don't I just give you the ingredients for a sacrifice? But he says nothing about selling the land. And David says, no, this is like eminent domain. The government is buying your, uh, your place here. And he does. And the curtain closes and the book is over. I'm falling apart up here. Now let's answer this question. Why would these books of Samuel close with this story? Like, what just happened in that thing? What happened is the God of the universe... Um, well, first, this is a story that you can miss the forest for the trees, you know what I mean? You read this chapter and you can focus in on, things, on questions you can't answer and that can suck all your attention. This is one of those you got to zoom out to 30,000 feet and view it from a distance because here's what happened. The God of the universe was really angry at sin in all of the people. We're not told which ones, doesn't matter. God thought it was sin, it's sin, and everybody's got it. 
And so God decided, I am going to pour out my wrath on this sinful people. But he does it in a way where he makes David do some stuff and he, he, he coerces David to do some stuff and put his trust someplace else and then God sends out this angel of death and it's killing folks closer and closer to the top and David says, enough! Please don't kill everyone, just kill me. And God says, now you get it, build the temple, I'll see you in in a thousand years. Does that sound familiar at all? This book closes here because this story points to the person of Jesus Christ. These books started because Israel needed the good king. Israel didn't have a king Israel needed a king. The first one they got was a nightmare. They didn't need just a king. Okay, we need a good king. So they got a good king, and then he went bad. But God promised the good king, the better king, David, through, I'm going to send a special king from your descendants. In a lot of ways, that special king, Jesus Christ, is so much like David. There's so many things through these books that point us to Jesus. And that's where the author leaves us. And here's how this points to Jesus. The God of the universe still hates sin. And guess guess what is sin and what is not sin? The stuff that's sin is the stuff that God says is sin. The stuff that's not sin is the stuff that God says is not sin. And that sounds overly simplistic, but it's really important to understand that. Otherwise, we will think we're not sinners, and we are. And in this, in this book, God shows us a picture of him pouring out his wrath on people who deserve it, but don't understand they deserve it. And that wave of his wrath, people are just dropping like flies, Is that still happening? It is. You know how I know? Because I looked up this morning, 186,000 people die every single day. God is, sin still costs death and God allows that angel, that, that death that comes for every one of us to just keep coming and coming and coming and coming and there's only one place where it stops. And it's the same place where David was that day, high on the hills around Jerusalem, or of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, where the chosen king was rejected, right up there at the temple by Israel. And he was put on trial and he was executed. In this story, what did God tell David to do so that he would stop killing everyone? Build an altar and offer a sacrifice atonement atonement just means the punishment i something else pays for my sin besides me that's what jesus does that's what we're going to celebrate at this table here with the rest of our time and it's the perfect time to celebrate communion because We just read this story that's super confusing and it it gives us more questions that we answer and we can get hung up in all that stuff. Well, I can't believe unless I know and what happened to this and I I don't think I can believe in a God. We can do all of that stuff or we can decide 
the more I read about this, the more imperfect I know that I am, which means I don't need improvement. I need a Savior. I need atonement. I don't need a pr- improvement. I need atonement. And Jesus Christ is the atonement. He is where the punishment you deserve for your sins went. God is still the same God that was in this chapter. God is going to cast millions of people away from his presence. And it will be right. You know why? Because God said it's right. And I can do something really silly and decide, well, I don't want to believe in a God like that. Who loses in that scenario? Because it ain't God. Or I can throw myself down at the foot of the cross and say, I need help. I need help from like all of my sin if you've never placed your faith in Christ. Or I need help with the sins that I'm sinning that I've convinced myself aren't sin in my situation. He can help in both of those situations. Don't you bow with me and let's pray as the guys come forward and we'll transition toward communion. Father God, thank you for the confusing way in which this book ends. Because we're a bunch of people who have a lot of questions still. But God, if you are drawing some of us to accept you and to trust you before we get our questions answered, and I pray you would work in the hearts of people to just say, you know what, I'll work on my questions later. Right now, I I want the angel of death to pass me by. I want life through the atonement of the blood of Jesus Christ. God, I believe what you have taught, that Jesus Christ was killed under the punishment I deserve for my sin. And then God, thank you that you will will walk through us, or walk with us, while we work through all of the questions we still have. You're not scared of any of our questions. You never tell us, don't you ask me questions like that. You're such a good father. But God, help us to not let our questions keep us from our father. Thank you for punishing Jesus in my place. And as the bread comes around, we remember what he did to pay for our sin. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I think a a good exercise when we are struggling with our yeah buts, right? When we have questions we can't answer. Yeah, but what about those people who never heard? Yeah, but what about people who can't help, you know, are are born a certain way and they, they, they can't help? Yeah, but what about, yeah, but here's a good exercise for that. 
question. I can't answer that question. I should ask myself this one. Yeah, but why should the God of the universe die instead of me? Yeah, but, yeah, but why would he absorb the punishment I deserve? I can't answer that one either. But I treasure it. What if we cling to that one while we work on the other ones? The night he was betrayed, he picked up bread and he said, this is my body, and he ripped it apart. He says, but it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, as the cup comes around, we remember the blood that was shed that reconciles us to a holy God. Commune with us in Jesus' name. Amen. a few minutes ago and I had that really uncomfortable list up there and I made you all feel terrible that was the part where I get to make you feel not so terrible because if you believe in Jesus Christ I know you're on that list somewhere but there's nothing on any list of sins that you are on that is stronger than the blood of God shed under the wrath of God to wash clean the people of God. I don't care how uncomfortable you were. I don't care how convicted you were. I don't care how rotten you felt. Jesus' blood is stronger. And he did everything it took to wash your sin away. And we do this in remembrance of him.